Good morning. I hope everybody had a good holiday. I'm Barbara Slavin. I'm acting director of the Future of Iran Initiative here at the Atlantic Council. And uh, I'm very excited about this event. I think it's an extremely timely discussion, uh, given the electoral events in this country and also the events in, in the Middle East. Um, I'm delighted that we are holding this event in conjunction with the Hariri Center and our Global Energy Center, and we're going to look at the issue of Russia's rising profile in the Middle East, uh, what Russia wants, what it means for our interests and the interests of our allies. And we have assembled an absolutely stellar panel to discuss these topics. Um, first, I'm delighted to say that we have uh, Anna Borshevskaya. She's the Ira Wiener Fellow at the Washington Institute for Near East Policy, where she focuses on Russia's policy toward the Middle East. She's also a fellow at the European Foundation for Democracy, and she was previously with the Peterson Institute for International Economics and here at the Atlantic Council. She's a former analyst for a U.S. military contractor in Afghanistan, and she's the author, most recently, of Russia in the Middle East, Motives, Consequences, and Prospects. Then we have our own Aaron Stein. He's a resident senior fellow at the Rafi Kariri Center for the Middle East. His interests include U.S.-Turkey relations and Turkish foreign policy, Syria, nonproliferation, and the Iranian nuclear program. He was previously a doctoral fellow at the Geneva Center for Security Policy. He was also with the Royal United Services Institute and the Center for Economics and Foreign Policy, Policy Studies. And he uh, lived in Istanbul, where he was a consultant for the International Crisis Group. Um, we have then Tom Cunningham, also from the Atlantic Council. He's deputy director of our Global Energy Center. He joined the Atlantic Council after 13 years with the State Department, where he most recently served as energy diplomacy team lead for Europe at the Bureau of Energy Resources. And he's also served in the Bureaus of International Narcotics and Law Enforcement Affairs, uh, commonly known as Drugs and Thugs, I believe. Uh, was, okay. European and Eurasian Affairs, Economic and Business Affairs, and Diplomatic Security. He also worked on climate and energy legislation in the Senate as a Brookings Legislative Fellow. Uh, and finally, we have a good friend of uh, the Atlantic Council, Ali Reza Nader. He's a senior international policy analyst at RAND, where his research focuses on Iran's political dynamics and elite decision-making and foreign policy. And he's the author of The Days After a Deal with Iran, Continuity and Change in Iranian Foreign Policy. And he's currently working on a very timely paper on potential challenges to the nuclear uh, agreement within Iran. Um, so I'm going to invite the panelists to come up and take a seat. And uh, we will start our discussion. I'm going to ask them a few questions. And then we are going to open up to uh, your questions. And I hope you have a lot of good questions ready. So please. Okay, um, Anna, I'm going to start with a very Russian question to you. Uh, <laughs> what is to be done? Um, Russia certainly has uh, assumed a much larger profile in the region. Um, some commentators, there was one on Foreign Policy uh, magazine recently who talked about Vladimir of Arabia and said that this was uh, a radical change from uh, 
I guess back to 1972 when Anwar Sadat expelled uh, Russian forces from Egypt. Uh, all of a sudden now we have Russia back in a big way. Um, so what does what Russia want and what do you think we can do about it? Sure, well, first of all, thank you so much, Barbara, for putting together this excellent panel. It's a pleasure to be here. Um, um, I'm gonna try to be as brief as possible so we have more time for questions. But the main point that I wanna start with is this. Um, uh, what does Russia want? Uh, Putin wanted to bring Russia uh, into the Middle East uh, from the very beginning since he came to power in March 2000. Um, this happened very quietly at the time. Nobody was really paying attention. Um, Russia had uh, retreated briefly from the Middle East um, under uh, Boris Yeltsin, um, um, who was the previous uh, Russian president. Um, but uh, Putin took advantage of this situation and uh, the, the commitment to bringing Russia back was there from the very beginning. Uh, but not simply to bring Russia back, to do it in a very, uh, in a zero-sum anti-Western uh, game, to position Russia as a counterweight to the West. Uh, Putin consistently took advantage of American retreat uh, from the region. Um, and um, again, in the early, in those early years, Putin was more cautious in his relations to the West. Uh, Russian presence was just not as visible. It only became visible um, several years ago, but it was there from the very beginning. And Putin worked consistently uh, towards that goal. That's something he doesn't get enough um, credit for. He is really committed to bringing down the West. It's, it's zero sum. It's either he wins, he wins, America loses. Sounds uh, familiar. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> um, exactly. There's nothing new. There's frankly nothing fundamentally new about Putin himself. Um, let me just say very briefly a few things about Russia and Iran because we're going to be talking about uh, this issue in the panel. Um, when um, analysts look at Russia-Iran relations, uh, they tend to emphasize the tenuous nature of the relationship, uh, and it's certainly true. Uh, this uh, uh, Russia and Iran are historical rivals and competitors. Uh, they fought two wars in the 19th century. Um, in fact, the first crisis of the Cold War was sparked in 1946 when um, Soviet Premier Joseph Stalin refused to withdraw um, uh, from Iran. Um, and in fact, to this day, as far as I know, Iranians remember the Soviet occupation. So the, 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 the distrust um, towards Russia and Iran, and in Russia towards uh, Iran and vice versa remains very deep. Uh, but I think um, very often when we, when we look at that uh, relationship, we therefore tend to think there's not much to it because of this very deep uh, distrust that has centuries-old history. Uh, because the fact of the matter is the current Russian-Iranian um, alliance, especially in recent years, is really unprecedented. Um, if you look at the grand, the, the big scope of Russia-Iran um, history. And uh, mutual distrust remains. It's going to continue to undercut the relationship, um, but it, it may not likely to last. It's, it's very possible this will be a short-term relationship, but it doesn't need uh, to be long-term in order to do real damage to American interests in the region. So the other point that I really want to emphasize is do, is do not underestimate uh, this alliance and Putin's commitment in particular to undermine the West, to use this alliance with Iran to undermine the West, especially America. Um, so um, very briefly, looking at the last several years, um, 
especially when Putin came to power, uh, returned to power, I should say, in 2012, uh, returned to his third presidential term, um, many Iranian diplomats began to openly refer to Moscow as a friend. And um, the candor, um, the expressiveness of these, um, uh, of these talks was really quite unprecedented. Um, Russia emerged as a strong voice in the P5 plus one group and worked consistently to dilute um, sanctions against Iran. Uh, bilateral cooperation intensified and expanded to other section, uh, other sectors. Um, uh, bilateral visits uh, intensified on very high levels. Two countries began to talk about boosting trade um, and so forth. Um, uh, uh, Russia's state nuclear corporation, Rosatom, uh, completed uh, the Bushehr nuclear plant. And in fact, they're now talking about building two new nuclear reactors for Iran. Um, so, uh, uh, you know, of course, we've seen with the Iran deal, Russia sold S-300 uh, weapons to, to Iran, something that many did not expect to happen. Uh, it's been on hold since 2010, but it, it finally happened despite Israel's uh, concerns. Um, so why is this happening? Um, well, this is happening because um, despite the differences uh, Russia and Iran share, the, uh, the two countries have uh, strategic goals. And these strategic goals uh, matter more to them than their differences. Um, Iran wants to buy Russia's weapons uh, and benefit from their nuclear technology expertise. Um, they, they have common interests in Afghanistan, especially since 2014. Um, Russia and Iran have a shared antipathy towards the Taliban because it's historically both anti-Shia and anti-Russian. Um, Russia and Iran are both directly impacted by narco-trafficking coming out of Afghanistan. Uh, but most of all, most of all, and this is coming back to my main point, uh, the two countries want to undermine the West, um, uh, including in the Middle East. And of course, the Syrian crisis became the perfect uh, storm for this. The, the Syrian crisis really brought uh, the two countries to new heights. Um, Putin, uh, um, I should say, you know, when he came to power, he pursued friendships with everybody in the Middle East. This was um, an interesting departure from the Soviet days. Certainly, there was no, no Soviet ideology anymore to speak of. Um, and Putin really courted everybody. Uh, he courted uh, Egypt, Turkey, um, Israel, Iraq, and Iran. Um, but at the same time, what we've seen emerge, especially in recent years, is a very clear pro-Shia tilt. Uh, and no matter how hard uh, the Kremlin tries to deny uh, that, uh, that, that it's there, if you look at that Russia's actual policies as opposed to Russia's rhetoric. Um, Can I stop you there? Sure. There's also it's a very strong pro-secular sure. uh, tilt. That's right. If we, look at the, uh, if we look at Sisi in Egypt, for example, and also Russia's been involved in Libya, right, in That's support right. of General Hiftar. So, uh, I mean, you could say it's pro-Shi, you could say it's anti-Muslim Brotherhood. Oh, or you could say it's anti-Sunni more broadly, for example. Yeah, because if you look at, um, again, you know, Assad, uh, Putin's support for the Assad regime, the Alawite mm -hmm. uh, regime that is anti-Sunni. Yeah. Uh, you know, and again, to give another example, frankly, the Muslim Brotherhood has been listed as a terrorist organization in Russia since 2003. Um, Hezbollah is not. So, uh, you know, um, and so certainly uh, the, the communication, communication with Iran um, is a little bit different than it is with, with Arab, um, especially with Sunni states. Um, and, uh, you know, just to wrap this up, um, uh, certainly we have a lot of questions going forward with uh, the recent election. Um, and I don't have uh, a lot of clear, clear answers, unfortunately. I wish I could. But I think we're entering a period of a lot of uncertainty. Um, 
we we still don't know. You know, we we've we've seen President-elect Trump's rhetoric. We've we've paid attention to it um, during the campaign. But now that he's president-elect, as soon to assume American presidency, um, I think it's I. I I would caution to wait and see uh, what he does. We still don't know. There's still so much we don't know about what he's going to do. Certainly his rhetoric uh, was consistently pro-Russian. And in fact, we've seen him flip-flop and contradict himself on a lot of things, but not on Russia, not on Putin. This was something that was very consistent. Um, there's very good reason to think that um, he may um, try to strike some sort of a deal with Putin in Syria um, and in, uh, lift sanctions in exchange for cooperation with Russia. Russia, um, as, as frankly as the previous administration had tried to do to some degree. Um, but that said, we still don't know what to expect. And um, uh, one thing about uh, Trump in particular that I want to say is he's very unpredictable. That's something we know about him. Um, frankly, um, I suspect Putin will try to test him, mm -hmm. uh, just as he would have tested any US administration. Uh, uh, despite all the enthusiasm that we've seen in the Kremlin for uh, Trump's victory, uh, frankly, I think they didn't expect him to win either. Uh, and uh, now that he has won um, U.S. presidency, they're going to have to deal with him. Uh, and uh, frankly, I don't think they know what to do um, as well. And I also suspect that if um, uh, Putin were to test Trump in a way that he doesn't like, he probably will push back. Again, we don't know uh, what that will look like. There's many questions here. Um, I uh, certainly uh, was among people who were strongly against uh, uh, President-elect Trump. I did not, ex I did not want this uh, to happen. I'm extremely concerned uh, about the region, about the Middle East, but also Eastern Europe, about what's going to happen in Ukraine sure. and sure. elsewhere. Um, but that said, there are a lot of unknowns. And I think we need to um, be careful about jumping to conclusions at this point. Okay. Appreciate it. That's very good. very good overview. Um, Aaron? Uh, one of the more interesting relationships that Putin has been redeveloping is with Erdogan in, uh, in Turkey uh, after a, a break in, in ties caused by Turkey shooting down a Russian plane. Uh, they seem to be each other's best buddies again. And I wonder if you could discuss the nature of that relationship. These are also historic rivals, certainly. How deep does it go? Um, what are the implications also for Syria, where, as we speak, uh, Aleppo uh, appears to be very close to what Trump said during the campaign, very close to falling, certainly the eastern part, mm -hmm. to the Syrian uh, regime and its uh, allies? Yeah. No, well, thank you, for everybody, for coming. And thank you for uh, uh, having me on the panel. Um, the, I would call the Turkish-Russian relationship uh, from the mid-1980s, you know, so at the time of the Cold War and when it was of overt and far more hostile tensions between the two actors is being very compartmentalized in that the two sides found ways to cooperate on issues that they found of mutual convenience, uh, sorry, of mutual interest. Uh, in the mid-1980s, that was largely natural gas, but in the 1990s, as, as Russia began to open up and Turkey's own economic opening really took root, uh, beginning in the 1980s, uh, it increasingly began to move into the economic sphere. And that economic sphere was really anchored by large infrastructure projects uh, of Turkish companies going into the newly independent states, uh, sort of Moscow's periphery, Russia's periphery, uh, but also in Russian tourists uh, coming to newly developed or developing uh, Mediterranean resorts uh, near Antalya. And to this day, if you go down to Antalya or okay. certain areas in Turkey, uh, the second language isn't English, it's Russian. You know, and so they have an entire 
tourism industry based upon uh, you know, the influx of Russian tourists. And so this pragmatic, compartmentalized relationship characterized, I would say, Turkish-Russian relations before, let's say, up until November uh, 23, 2015, which is the day, uh, the day before two Turkish F-16s shot down a Russian Su-24. Now, why did the Turkish F-16s do that? Well, you know, it went largely unreported, but you know, the Turks, beginning in 2012, were keeping a constant presence along the border, largely to deter Syrian regime flights from going near the border, to try and carve out a little mini safe zone to give the, 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 the opposition and the insurgency uh, some breathing room uh, from regime uh, bombardment. Uh, and the Russians continually tested that after they intervened. Uh, the shootdown of the Su-24 was actually the second shootdown of a, of a Russian aircraft by a Turkish jet. Uh, the first was a surveillance drone near Kilis. Uh, uh, but that changed the relationship, obviously, uh, for the worse. Uh, and the Russians took it to the Turks, and they mixed those two things for the, in the, for the first time, the compartmentalized relationships, imposing economic sanctions in ways that significantly hurt the Turkish tourism uh, sector where you had Turkish economists saying that as a result of the decrease in tourists, you were going to have a point ticked off the Turkish GDP. Now, if you know anything about the AKP, their entire political legitimacy is built around they are the ones who can bring the money to the economy. And when you begin to bring that away, some of the fabric that supports the AKP starts to go away. Uh, obviously, this didn't happen in a vacuum. Uh, at the same time, uh, there was a uptick in terrorism-related incidents inside Turkey, uh, both perpetrated by the Islamic State uh, and the Kurdistan Workers' Party, the PKK. Uh, and so together, you had a decrease in Western tourists, you had a decrease in Russian tourists, and so you had problems going on in the Turkish economy. Uh, and I was there in March, you know, you know, a couple months after the, in, in Turkey, uh, after uh, the, 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 the shoot-down. Uh, and I was, I spent 48 hours, you know, two days, you know, in, in Ankara, and then two days of that was in the MFA. Uh, uh, and, and everybody decided to try and put the fear of God into a, a lowly think tanker who came over to explore U.S.-Turkey relations because they were so upset that the United States wasn't doing more to deter, to deter Russia. And their fundamental problems were is that after the shootdown, the U.S. did send some F-15s from Lake and Heath to conduct joint combat air patrols along the border, but they went away after two weeks. Uh, Patriot missiles that had been put in place inside of Turkey in 2012 had been withdrawn in a very haphazard and, frankly, stupid diplomatic way here in the United States to where the Turks found out about it uh, in the press and not directly from uh, the U.S. itself. And what did they want? And so what did they express as their desires from the U.S., which was a far more robust carrier group presence in the Mediterranean, and they wanted those F-15s back. And so if you put that in context, up until March, you know, April, May, you had a very hostile relationship between the Turks and the Russians. And then as happens in Turkish foreign policy, you had a dramatic shift by the leader, President Recep Tayyip Erdogan, who apologizes to Turkey rather unexpectedly, apologizes to Russia, excuse me, rather unexpectedly. Uh, and I think this is where Syria- Was that before or after the coup attempt? It was before. before. It, was, it, was, it, was, it, was, it was late June. Um, and I think the backdrop to this as comes into the play is, is, is Syria, uh, is that concurrent to all these tensions with Russia, Turkey was having tensions with the United States over the PKK's Syrian affiliate, the PYD. Uh, here in the United States, we call them the SDF, the Syrian Democratic Forces. Um, and 
they had become the backbone of the American strategy inside of Syria to take territory from the Islamic State. And you're beginning to see real gains pushing across, you know, across the Euphrates River, uh, which the Turks have always said was a red line for them, and beginning to impinge upon one of their primary security interests, which is a contiguous Kurdish entity uh, across their longest land border. And their options were limited in terms of what they could do to react to that because of the concerns that if they were to send forces across the border, Moscow would bomb them. And if Moscow bombs them, then all of a sudden you have a conflagration of issues that goes to NATO and then escalation in certain respects. And the Turks were cognizant of that. And so I think in some respects the, the apology was a prelude to deal. <laughs> to, I wouldn't call it an understanding mm. that Turkish interests had to be taken into account in a far more robust way uh, inside of Syria. And so after that, uh, uh, you obviously had the coup attempt, and maybe we can go into that uh, uh, in the Q&A in the, in the if, if, if you'd like. Um, but this idea that's come after the coup attempt in particular is a very sharp, inward-oriented looking, hyper-nationalist new Turkish constituency that's being propped up on instrumentalized anti-Westernism, where Russia is being dangled uh, as a potential alternative to the United States in, 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 in Turkish foreign policy. I don't believe it has any merit. Uh, uh, I don't think the Turks are actually serious about doing it. But nevertheless, it's, it's, it's a good idea to try and put pressure on the United States to say we can go elsewhere. And I think a great symbolism for this was after the crackdown on domestic Kurds inside of Turkey. Uh, you had European Union diplomats go to the Kurdish political party uh, uh, parliamentary meetings on Tuesday and sit in solidarity, where you had Alexander Dugin. Uh, I don't exactly know what he, what he does in the Kremlin. He sort of seems to be a fixer, uh, strategist. Um, uh, he went to the AKP uh, parliamentary rally and sat next to high-level officials. Hmm. And a very symbolic thing that was broadcast on television, Russians with the AKP, the stupid West Europeans with those terrorist Kurds sitting in parliament. <laughs> Let me ask you, I mean, Turkey is a member of NATO. Right. Uh, does, is that status going to be threatened by this? Uh, you know, uh, I don't think so. You know, uh, there's incredible value that Turks see in being a member of the world's most powerful military alliance. Uh, but the coup attempt has severely upended uh, uh, a lot of assumptions about the value of NATO because one of the forces involved in the coup attempt was committed, at least on paper, to NATO's rapid reaction force. And so a lot of the officers that were nominally assigned to NATO, either in Istanbul and also in Brussels, have been purged from the military. And so you have big moves that have been pulled out of the Turkish military of, uh, of, of that constituency, let's call it. I think it's overblown to say that there's a Eurasianist versus a NATO constituency within the Turkish military. It certainly exists. Uh, that's reflected in, in domestic Turkish po uh, politics. Uh, I would say through the middle level of the bureaucracy in Turkey, the military and the MFA, there's extreme skepticism about Moscow. Mm -hmm. uh, but nevertheless, it's valuable to, to overplay that, if you will, to try and put pressure on the US because of divergences about Syria. And then I'll just wrap up with, 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 with Syria, and then we can move on. Um, yeah, uh, they're winning the uh, Assad-Iran-Russia uh, alliance appears to have, <coughs> well, by the time Trump takes office on January 20th, I mean, will there be a resistance in Aleppo? No, probably not. 
Yes, but I would argue that the fall of Aleppo was a foregone conclusion as soon as Russia intervened. It was just a matter of time. Uh, I, would say that the, uh, I would say that the more interesting aspect of this is that with the movement of uh, Turkish forces across the border on August 24th, is that you've had, I wouldn't call it an agreement, uh, I'd call it a, a general understanding, is that the Turks were able to push in with minimal or no resistance from Moscow at all. Uh, with one exception, uh, is that you don't threaten Aleppo, you don't flank it, uh, and the other is there seems to be, let's say, not 100% agreement on the status of Al-Bab, this little town mm -hmm. It's about 20 miles from the Turkish border, where in recent days you've had conflicting reports, but the general consensus is Syrian regime jets bombed Turkish forces, uh, killing three, injuring 10. Uh, and in recent days, you've had Syrian regime with Kurdish forces together push west from, uh, sorry, east from their westernmost positions to, to, to get within three kilometers as of this morning of Al-Bab, whereas north of it, you have Turks about a kilometer away, and on the other side, you have Kurds as well. And so it becomes a flashpoint. And so you have this really interesting dynamic unfolding is where nominally anti-ISIS actors, the Kurds, the Turks, the, the, the opposition the, Kurd, the, the Turks have brought along with them uh, uh, are coming together and you can have a new era of the civil war open up even though ISIS has been ousted from territory once controlled. And I'll stop there. Okay. Um, Tom, energy is obviously a very big component of this story. Uh, <coughs> What should we expect in terms of Russian uh, cooperation with Turkey on new pipelines uh, or res resuming work on pipelines that had been started and then left uh, dormant? Uh, what are Russia's other energy plays in the region with, uh, given the fact that it's competing with Iran and Saudi Arabia in terms of, of production? Uh, how will Russia use its new influence in the region to improve its energy posture? Well, thanks, Barbara. These are good questions. And I think from the perspective of when, when on the energy side of the picture, I think it's sort of the most straightforward element of all the different um, modalities that we're discussing today. So if you noting the, the key takeaway, I think, is that Russia is a major oil producer, as are most of these Middle East countries. Therefore, I think you could look at them really as competitors as opposed to natural partners. This is when it comes to energy specifically. So um, I think for Russia, it's more important um, for them to, more important than say increasing production or increasing market share of oil fields, it's more important for them to maintain the market share in the downstream, so the major buyers of oil and gas that they work with, and to um, maintain political influence that's associated with those energy exports. And, um, I think that you know, looking at looking at Russia, oil is about money, and gas is about political power. So that was about politics. I'm quoting an old boss, so um, that's don't attribute that to me. But I, I think, um, therefore, when you you know, it's also important to note that Russia has had its highest production of oil this year since Soviet times. Um, and this is mostly due to the depreciated ruble. So the impact of the oil price decline, more so say than um, US European imposed sanctions that target the energy sector, this depreciated ruble has really um, 
actually driven more production because perversely, the production costs are in rubles, mm -hmm. but the revenues of oil sales are in dollars. So in addition to that, there's a tax structure inside Russia that does not tax greenfield production, but does tax uh, brownfield. So it's sort of driving um, new, pr new mm -hmm. conventional production. So Russia's producing a lot. Um, in terms of Turkey, Turkey, I think, relies on 98% of its gas demand from imports, a lot of it from Russia, a lot of it from Iran, Iran. Um, and my Midwestern, my Midwestern hat is, can't, be, can't, be, can't be hidden. Um, the, so for, in those relationships, there's, I think there's a lot of leverage that Russia has in terms of um, those negotiations. And I think Russia, Turkey may have visions of being a major um, energy hub, mm -hmm. but um, we can go into detail about that in the Q&A. But, but I think the main interest on the Russian side is, yes, feeding Turkish domestic demand, which is frankly the only um, OECD country that has having energy demand growth, but it also is to maintain downstream um, uh, say European consumers to continue to use Russian gas. So, so its concern would be about diversification efforts of other gas that would come to the European market, say from the Eastern Mediterranean. So, um, what about Turkstream? So Turkstream, I think, is something that Russia and Turkey will continue. And explain what that is. Sure, Turkish Stream is a uh, pipeline project proposal that uh, Gazprom has been pushing in various um, guises or various um, iterations for quite a long time. So Europe gets most of its gas from Russia through pipelines that go through Belarus and through Ukraine, and it has tried um, to augment that those import streams through Nord Stream, one is which one of which is online and one is proposed, and also through a southern a southern route. Um, not to be confused with the Southern Gas Corridor. Southern Corridor is, is good. S uh, South Stream is bad. Turk Stream is bad from a European diversification standpoint. And so this is an attempt to, to allow um, European demand to be met with Russian gas by means other than through Ukraine. So to build it through To Turkey. get more leverage over Ukraine. To get, I think not necessarily more leverage over Ukraine, but just to, um, just to maintain uh, economic dependency and political influence in Europe without regard to the Ukraine question. Sort of cut it out of the negotiating scope. Mm -hmm. um, I, don't think, I don't think it's leverage over Ukraine so much as, as a disregards um, and maybe just a fist, mm -hmm. frankly speaking. Um, so Turkish Stream is an attempt to do that and it had been off the table and then on again and now we have a signed um, intergovernmental inter agreement between the Russian and Turkish governments. It hasn't been approved by the Turkish parliament, but um, it, it, it's likely to be, or all but certain to be. And the question is, will that pipeline or series of pipelines along a route feed only Turkish um, demand, or would it also feed European demand? Currently, say Istanbul is, met, is fed with Russian gas through this Trans-Balkan pipeline that goes through Ukraine, Romania south, um, that could be replaced with uh, gas from, from uh, Turk Stream. The question is, would gas go onward into Europe? And if it did, that would undermine diversification efforts, both with regard to new gas supplies, say from Southern Quarter, Azerbaijan, or elsewhere, 
as well as the uh, commercial viability of other diversification efforts like just simply improving interconnectors and improving market function um, for uh, integrated gas market inside Europe. So that's Turkish Stream. Um, and uh, I'll stop there, okay. but we can go we can into Q&A we'll at any time. We can talk about Saudi and so on, perhaps, in, in sure. the Q&A. Um, Ali, uh, Anna started the conversation about Iran and Russia and gave some of the historical perspective of, uh, of their rivalry over, over many, many centuries. Mm -hmm. um, because of the Syria conflict in particular, we have seen uh, an extraordinary degree of cooperation. Uh, we had the incident where uh, Russian bombers flew from uh, an Iranian air base in Hamadan, uh, which was certainly unusual. Um, <clears throat> there's a lot of talk in the press about $10 billion of arms sales. Uh, there were some comments also from the Iranian defense minister, uh, Hossein uh, Degan, that uh, they wanted to buy Russian Suhoi uh, Su-30 fighter planes, um, et cetera, et cetera. So how real is this? Um, and what are the implications for uh, Western interests and the interests of uh, American allies in the region? Well, first of all, thank you for inviting me. Uh, I think it's actually very real and very important. Uh, like Anna said, it is unprecedented in a lot of ways. These are two countries that have been historic rivals. I can't really think of any other time in which Iran has cooperated so closely with Russia, but really since the revolution of foreign power, in uh, devising a strategy in the Middle East in places like Syria, but also in Iraq as well against the fight uh, with ISIS. Uh, there have been even reports in the Israeli press about Russia cooperating with Hezbollah. The Israelis are very concerned that uh, with uh, Russian uh, air defenses in Syria, they can't have freedom of action against Hezbollah. So that's all very significant. Uh, there's been talk of Russia selling weapons to Iran, although I think that would be difficult because of the JCPOA um, and the prohibition against conventional arms sales for the next couple of years anyhow. Uh, and like you mentioned, Russia used the air base in Hamadan. Again, unprecedented. Uh, it's illegal actually for foreign forces to be based in Iran and use Iran as a, as a base. And uh, it actually raised questions within uh, Iran's political circles. Uh, members of parliament protested. And of course, the Iranian military told them, it's none of your business. So I think you know, it's a very uh, important and growing relationship. I think the question is, is it enduring? And is it a deep strategic partnership or alliance? Because the assumption has been that uh, the Russian-Iranian relationship is one of convenience. And the two have worked together to offset US power in the Middle East. But it's never been clear how far they're willing to go in forging a real strategic relationship. And I think that question still remains. I don't think, for me anyhow, that has been answered. And I think it depends on a number of factors. One would be the outcome of the conflict in Syria. So once the opposition has been mostly defeated in place like, places like Aleppo, uh, well, Russia and Iran uh, see things very differently. There have been some reports of uh, differences in tensions in the Russian-Iranian relationship in Syria. Uh, I don't think right now I would say that there are major disagreements, but that's a possibility. 
and another, I think, major factor, probably more important than anything, is a U.S.-Russian relationship. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, if Trump and Putin become buddies, uh, the question is what would happen to the Russian-Iranian relationship? Because I think in a lot of ways, uh, Iran is a weaker partner in the relationship. Sure. Uh, it's relatively isolated. It doesn't have uh, any partnerships with major powers. The Chinese tend to stay away from Iran in terms of military security cooperation. The Europeans won't sell weapons to Iran or cooperate with it too closely. So Russia is it for Iran. And uh, I think Iran has used Russia to expand its influence in the Middle East. But uh, if, I, if I were an Iranian official, I'd be concerned that once uh, Russia and the US become closer, that Russia would uh, backstab Iran. So that's one possibility. Uh, although I can make the argument that in a lot of ways, even if Trump and Putin cooperate in Syria and elsewhere in the Middle East, that there are major differences between the US and, and Russia on so many issues, uh, really differences in national interests that go beyond the individual leadership of the US anyhow, but uh, both countries possibly, and that in the long term, it makes sense for Russia and Iran to cooperate uh, against uh, you know, what they both call Sunni fundamentalism or Wahhabism, uh, against US influence in the Middle East. Uh, right now, Iran, I would argue, is the decisive power in places like Iraq, Syria, and Lebanon. So why wouldn't the Russians take advantage of that? I mean, the, the Russian intervention in Syria has been very important, but I don't think the recapture of Aleppo will be possible without Iranian-sponsored troops and Iranian troops themselves. And uh, recently, uh, there was a report from Iran that up to 1,000 Iranian or Iranian-supported troops have died in Syria. So Iran is very active in that country. So I think even with an improvement in relations between the US and Russia, the uh, Russian-Iranian cooperation can, can continue and probably will continue in a major fashion. And even al although the Russian use of the Hamadan Air Base has been stopped, I wouldn't be surprised if that resumes and we see... Uh, yeah, the defense minister actually said that that right. could happen. Yeah. yeah, exactly, whether it's illegal or not uh, in Iran. And then another factor, I think, is the status of the nuclear agreement, the JCPOA. I don't think the Russians would be... Uh, too happy along with really the rest of the world if the United States uh, rolled back the nuclear agreement and passed additional sanctions. I think there is uh, a lot the Trump administration can do to really undermine the agreement. Um, but I think the other parties, including the Russians, would not be happy about that. And for, for them, the nuclear issue for now has been set aside. It's really only controversial in the United States and perhaps Israel and really nowhere else. It's not even that controversial in Iran. So I, I, really, I think it really depends too on what the US does uh, on JCPOA. That could uh, create a lot of uh, tensions in US-Russian uh, relations, which could make it easier for Iran to work with Russia mm -hmm. in the short term and perhaps the long term as well. Mm -hmm. Um, Anna, if there's a, a pattern uh, that, that we're seeing where Russia and, mm -hmm. and the incoming Trump administration align, it's in support of authoritarian regimes. Yeah. Yes. 
Um, and, uh, you know, I, I don't know if you can talk a little bit about Egypt or some of these other places. Is this, again, how serious is this? Is Russia really going to have bases in Egypt again? Is it really going to be uh, selling weapons to Egypt? Mm -hmm. Egypt is broke, after mm -hmm. all. Uh, we have seen a flirtation with General Hiftar mm -hmm. um, in, uh, in, in Libya. Um, Again, is this just to annoy the United States, which is supporting a rival government in, in, in Tripoli? What's the, how much should we, I mean, apart from Syria, where obviously the Russians are all in, uh, how seriously should we take these various relationships? I think we should take them pretty seriously. And, um, you know, one reason, um, uh, believe it or not, has to do with Russia's domestic um, issues. Mm -hmm. um, Russia's economy has been on a steady decline path, and it's going to continue to deteriorate. It's going to be a slow deterioration. Um, it, you know, and there's disagreement on how, how it's going to happen, but I think um, there's, again, there's lots of factors that may influence the speed with which the Russian economy will decline, but the fact of the matter is it has been in decline for a long time. And um, historically, um, the Kremlin tends to uh, get very aggressive internationally when uh, Russian economy gets weak. And again, we've seen this many times before. This is not, uh, this is not new. Um, so I think we, we can count um, in the next, next several years on a much more aggressive uh, Russian foreign policy, broadly, broadly speaking. Um, uh, you, you raised the question of Egypt, and you're absolutely right. You know, uh, Egypt is broke, uh, <laughs> as, as you put it. Um, but that said, um, Putin's anti-Americanism is growing, and I think it's going to keep growing. And, and again, it, this, you know, regardless of who um, would have been the next American president, um, Putin has chosen America as his enemy. Uh, and uh, he likes to point to that enemy, especially when things go wrong at home. So, um, you know, to be perfectly frank, if, um, uh, if Trump and Putin were to have some kind of a reset, of which I'm skeptical of, if uh, Russia and America really become friends, uh, who is Putin going to blame? Russia's problems. I don't, know. I, I don't know that as well, and I, I ask this sort of rhetorically because I, I think he's going to need Russia as an enemy. Uh, uh, excuse me, America is the enemy. Um, so, um, uh, you know, it, Putin certainly doesn't like to give things for free. Again, this is not the Soviet Union. Uh, but I think we should take what's happening very seriously, and I, I think that if, uh, if there was a way for Putin to find a little bit of extra cash to finance um, uh, weapons sales to Egypt, I think that is very possible. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, Aaron, looking forward in, in, uh, in Syria, um, do you foresee, uh, you know, we're, we're hearing obviously Aleppo is, is certainly likely not to stand uh, much longer. Um, how deep do you think the Russian support for Assad goes? Will, be they, will they be satisfied and start to withdraw if, uh, if useful Syria is back in complete control of the Assad regime? They have a, a base at Tartus. Do they want more bases? I've seen reports that they want permanent bases now in Syria. Um, how would Turkey like that? Uh, and uh, I don't know how Iran would like that, but what's your sense of what their ambitions are in, in, in Syria as we move forward? Yeah, uh, as I said in my opening, I, I, the, the, I think the conquering of, or the taking back of, of Aleppo, conquering is not the right word, uh, was a foregone conclusion when you had the joint, you had the Russian intervention along with you know, substantial Iranian, um, 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 uh, let's say ground presence as well, augmenting regime forces. Uh, now the question becomes the then what, 
uh, scenario. And the quagmire word gets thrown around, thrown around a lot around here, particularly by the Obama administration. Uh, I wouldn't call it a quagmire, but I would call it a, a they're in a cul-de-sac. They have no way out. Uh, and I, I think that's, and I, and I think that they are discovering the Russians, or they have already discovered, uh, is that they intervene too late. Is that they're intervening? They intervened at a time when the regime was weak, mm -hmm. fragmented, uh, you know, relying on local or largely Iranian-sponsored militias to keep the peace, uh, or at least the front lines in areas, and they were losing badly uh, to a heavily Islamist insurgency, particularly around uh, Idlib itself. And so, my my, my always assumption is that those underlying factors don't go away because Aleppo has been taken off the chess been taken off the chessboard. You still have Idlib, uh, and you also have another wild card in that: what does a post-Assad or a sort of Assad in power or an Assad crony in power Syria actually look like, and what are Russia's ambitions for that? And here's where the Turks come back in. It's that there's a whole blob of yellow on the map, if you, know, if you look at it, that's controlled by the Syrian Kurds. And at points when the Turkish-Russian relationship was, had gone poorly, you had Russian support for directly for the Syrian Kurds at one point, particularly around Mara, uh, and the Turks would say clandestinely through the, through the provision of, of, of arms. Uh, I'm skeptical about the latter, but nevertheless, there is some sort of historic relations between the PKK and Moscow that were there. Um, but nevertheless, so what does Russia believe a future, a future Syrian state looks like? And I think that is the ultimate question that nobody can answer. Or at least if you do have an idea of what it will look like, uh, you can't say it out loud because what you'll be saying is the fragmentation of a nation state and an outside power imposing it. And I think the Trump administration, as it comes into power, even if it wants to cut a deal with, 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 with Russia and de-escalate American involvement in one aspect of the war, the western half of the war, where we're providing significant arms and ammunition for the, for the opposition, uh, you're still left with the eastern half. Well, you'll have a, an administration that's inheriting a war against ISIS that the president-elect has, has, has pledged to, to win decisively. How? By increasing air power and not those words. And so, you're still left with that, 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 that problem point about who your ground force is. And if the Trump administration is not going to put in his American troops, uh, who do you turn to? Uh, you're going to have these wonderful looking Syrian Kurds that have 250 American Special Operations Forces sitting next to them still there uh, who are saying, well, we can do it if you just give us this. And so that becomes part of the bargaining play, I think, with Russia, with the United States, with the Syrian Kurds, with Turkey, with Iran. Mm -hmm. uh, Iran, we don't talk about a lot in this context, but I can imagine a lot of things t uh, Tehran would completely push, you know, would not like is a independent Kurdish enclave run by the PKK along, you know, uh, uh, in, 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 in northern Syria. And so there's all these moving parts that I think Aleppo is a, is a, it's a terrible story. You know, these people are dying at the hands of indiscriminate Russian bombing you know, in, in tactics reminiscent of sort of Vietnam, uh, uh, you know, um, but it's just, it, it's just one footnote, and we can't focus all of that on there. Do, do you envision the U.S. and Russia jointly bombing ISIS together? I mean, that's it, something that Trump raised. 
and the Obama administration that did too. I think one of the temptations is going to be to, to resurrect the JIG, the joint, whatever they were calling it, the joint interagency group, uh, whatever it was. Yeah. What JIG? The JIG is up. Um, is, is that you would have joint targeting of Jabhat Fatah al-Sham, Jabhat al-Nusra in Idlib, uh, which you know, murmurs around here, even before President-elect Trump was concerns that the U.S. is also in a cul-de-sac in the eastern part, in the western part of the war, is that if you increase support for the opposition, you indirectly support al-Qaeda. If you decrease support for the opposition, you indirectly support al-Qaeda. And so you have this problem that no matter what you do in Syria, you have a strength in al-Qaeda that comes out on the other end. And so you have to begin to address military options towards it. And one of the instincts to do that while trying to save Aleppo was to constrain Russian bombing through the jig. I could see that coming back uh, under a Trump administration while the Kurds are let loose uh, uh, in Raqqa, presuming they go, the Turks come here uh, with the al-Bab situation. But you know, it's very easy to make these wild, bold pronouncements and debates you know, about we're going to bomb the you-know-what out of, out of ISIS. <laughs> Actually putting a coherent strategy around that when you inherit the portfolio uh, I still think the Trump administration is going to be in for a very steep learning curve about the, 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 the problems. And cutting a deal with Putin uh, sounds nice, but there's other players involved. Indeed, indeed. Tom, just back to the energy question again and, and uh, Russia's ability to affect prices and so on. You say they're, they're pumping more than ever. Uh, I thought they were trying to boost the price and had, had discussions with the Saudis and so on on doing something with OPEC. Is that all? That's Smoke good. and mirrors. Let me come back first to a, just a Syria point in terms of energy or in terms of <coughs> Russia, sure. Russia in Syria from the energy standpoint. Just a minor thing, which is that uh, it's worth noting that um, Syria has a lot of production potential, hmm. but overall that production is declining. So that production is so. Nevertheless, um, Russia right now is the only non-Syrian concession holder in Syrian waters. Um, and is the only non-Syrian company operating in Syria. I, I think CNPC, the Chinese company, has people on the ground but are not operating in Syria. Hmm. So, it's, um, so Russia, I think, does stand a lot to gain as a player in Syria's oil production mm -hmm. if and when um, conflict abates. Um, but it is important to note that that overall production is declining. So it's not, say, sitting on the kind of resources that Saudi Arabia is by any means. And it's also important to note that that oil is sour, so highly sulfuric. So mm -hmm. a lot of enhanced oil recovery is needed Correct. to produce it. Um, and so that's not likely in this price environment. And also, uh, most of that production is in the Northeast, where Syrian Kurds are in control. Mm -hmm. And they would be reluctant to give the power over back to Damascus. So um, it's not a. It's not. It's not a win-win-win, but it is. Um, there's a little bit of economic potential there, or in terms of uh, in terms of influencing economic growth in the region. Mm -hmm. um, so that's the Syria point. In terms of, uh, um, I think that you could say that on overall oil production or Im impacting global markets. So I think Saudi and Russia cooperation would be a really strong word. I think that all of their cooperation <coughs> is in the um, OPIC context, but I also, my experience is that I think OPIC is more relevant now for giving price signals as it anticipates making a deal, as opposed to really being able to affect um, oil prices based on changing global supplies. 
or by changing production to, uh, to impact global supplies because shale is here to stay. So U.S. shale. And of course, we're going to be increasing our production, I presume, under, uh, under President Trump. Um, well, that's a totally separate question. Um, I think the market will determine what's produced. I mm -hmm. think that the ability to produce more, say, on federal lands may lead to some production increases, but it will be driven by price. Um, and I think that that will happen. I think that U.S. production would continue, depending on price, regardless of who's in power. So I don't see that there's, I don't think it's, I think it's a simplification to say that uh, um, the new administration will be able to just pull a lever and a lot more production will happen. Mm -hmm. So, so um, coming back to OPEC um, and the cooperation there between, say, Russia and Saudi Arabia is, I think that there has been conversations because it can impact the market, mm -hmm. but not because actually an actual OPEC agreement or Russia working with them on an agreement. I think that has yet to bear any fruit and actually to have any real market impact. Okay. Ali, I want to come back to you. We have two powers with hegemonic ambitions now, uh, working together but potentially clashing. Uh, Iran, you know, we've seen now even talk of having bases in Yemen, which the, the Houthis uh, dispelled very quickly. But, you know, they have power in Iraq. They have power in Syria. They have power in Lebanon. A uh, very expansive view of themselves, um, certainly in, uh, in recent years. Um, uh, and we have Russia flexing its muscles throughout this region. So I guess the question is, can they cohabit the region and both exert their hegemonic ambitions without clashing? Uh, or will there be a point where, where we might see some pushback? For example, if Russia wants major bases in Syria, is that something that Iran is going to be pleased about? I think, yeah, they can coexist. Uh, I mean, there, there will always be tensions between the two countries, but I think there's enough uh, in the Middle East for the, for the two countries to share, actually. You know, I, I really don't think Iran is going to have permanent military bases in places like Yemen or Syria the way Russia or the U.S. would be able to. I don't think Iran has those sort of capabilities. I think uh, in this instance, the bark is louder uh, than the bite. Is that how you say that? Bark is louder than the bite. Right. Yeah. It's worse than that. Uh, so I think in Syria they <laughs> worse, can yeah. coexist because I think uh, Iran and Russia do want different things as well. Uh, Iran wants to be able to supply Hezbollah, wants to have influence in Syria. And before the conflict in Sy Syria, both Russia and Iran were major actors in that country. So I haven't seen too much uh, evidence to suggest that there are major divisions between the two. And in fact, I think given Iran's ground presence in Syria, the Shia militias in places like Aleppo and elsewhere, the, the Russians really can't push Iran out of Syria. And Iran needs Russia to a large extent in order to buy weapons and protect itself against any uh, pushback against JCPOA in the future as well. Mm -hmm. Okay. Uh, we're going to open up now to your questions. So if you have a question for the panel, uh, please raise your hand and wait for the microphone, and I see one over here, and say your name if you would. And say if the question is directed toward one uh, or more of the panelists. Yeah, hi, uh, James Drew from Aviation Week, and just a question, general question to the whole panel. Um, maybe uh, you could touch on what, what's the chances of uh, the missile systems like the S-300 proliferating even more through the Middle East and really complicating uh, US air operations in that region. And, and maybe also, what's the, what, what's the impact of selling 
uh, Turkey F-35s at a time when it is having warmer relations with Russia. Uh, it's not, not the Turkey that uh, signed up to the, uh, to the Joint Strike Fighter program originally. And so maybe you could just touch on those okay. two points. Aaron, maybe you want to start on it? <clears throat> yeah. Um, I'm going to start first with just the proliferation of missile defenses in general. I think it's often overlooked because they're, 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 they're classified as defensive weapons. Uh, one thing I see in the Middle East broadly, the S-300 being one, Patriot being the other, is that the proliferation of missile defense system incentivizes actors to offset those capabilities with increased both ballistic missile and cruise missile production. Uh, and so you then begin a, a missile race at the conventional level. Uh, and I actually think the, the, uh, the countries we should be most concerned about, oh, well, Iran being the, the primary uh, proliferator of ballistic missiles, uh, also has an active cruise missile program, but so do the Gulf states uh, in, 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 in both. So the S-300 I see as a continuation of that um, obviously begins to complicate um, U.S. air operations. Um, but if there's one thing I put trust in in the U.S. Air Force, it's being able to suppress enemy air defense. Uh, we're pretty good at that. Uh, and so uh, I always tend to be skeptical uh, about wild pronouncements or at least heavy pronouncements about the introduction of one anti-air missile changing the entire threat environment. Uh, for, for, for U.S. pilots. Uh, where I think it links to the F-35 is what decision Turkey makes on T-Lormit, its own program to, 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 to purchase uh, missile defense systems. Uh, Ankara has, has entertained four offers, made a decision on a Chinese system, you know, their, their version of the S-300, the HQ-9, uh, but ultimately got rid of that uh, under heavy NATO pressure and is now re thinking it, and there is flirting again with the Russians as part of this, we may go to Moscow type dangling. They could, you know, uh, 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 and I think selling the Joint Strike Fighter to a country, a NATO country that operates a non-NATO designated air defense system is a bad idea. <laughs> um, uh, with that said, I think with the cost of the F-35, I think Lockheed has to look for export partners wherever they can find them, and Turkey is a tier three partner. So I think it will still go through uh, uh, regardless. Uh, but I think diplomatically we should be pushing uh, for the Eurosam, uh, the SAMT, um, as the missile defense system of choice uh, for, for, for NATO ally Turkey. Mm -hmm. Ali, did you want to add something to that on the S-300? or? Well, I don't have much to add, but I would be curious if Iran is going, going to buy even more sophisticated Russian uh, systems at S-400. I haven't seen that happening, but it's a possibility. Um, and then I think the concern would be Iran giving that technology to some of its allies, whether in Lebanon or Syria, very unlikely. Yeah. Uh, uh, but I don't think it's really a major issue concerning Iran, uh, except for the, the fact that the Russians not cover Lebanon as well. So the question is, would, would that protect Hezbollah from future Israeli action against that group? Yes, lady here. Hi, I'm Rebecca Ash with the Middle East Institute. Um, my question is for Anna, but the whole panel can address it. Um, so with Russia aligning so fiercely with Sunni uh, groups and powers, uh, sorry, Shia groups and powers, uh, what exactly is the Sunni world and Sunni groups saying about that? And could they possibly get together and pressure Russia uh, one way or the other? Yeah, and I would add to that, Anna, what does it mean for the 
uh, insurgent groups within Russia and, uh, sure. you know, that have caused so much problems in the past. Yeah. Sure. And actually, maybe I'll start with that. You know, what's interesting is that most of Russia's own uh, Muslims are actually Sunni. Um, and, uh, uh, you know, anecdotally, Russia's Syria intervention had worried uh, Russia's Muslims a great deal because um, they didn't know what that would mean eventually for them domestically. Um, and uh, what's also interesting uh, about the situation, you know, for example, even the Circassians, for example, uh, in uh, a, a Muslim minority uh, in Russia, um, uh, remembered uh, the Tsarist uh, uh, ethnic cleansing of the Circassians and eventual ex expulsion of them uh, from Syria. And what if, if there were some Circassians being bombed in Syria, that would reverberate domestically in, in Russia immediately, again, just anecdotally. Um, what Putin, and to, get to, to get back to your question, um, uh, what Putin has done uh, is he tried to play a very interesting balancing act again. So uh, he says he's friends with everybody. He will never actually say uh, that he tends to favor the Shia over the Sunni. In fact, uh, the, uh, Russian um, uh, domestic rhetoric, uh, Kremlin-sponsored rhetoric, really tends to emphasize, they don't even talk really about the Sunni-Shia uh, divide very much in the Middle East. It's really all about um, uh, protecting legitimate regimes against terrorists. This is how the Kremlin sells Syria, for example, uh, uh, to, to the Russian domestic audience, that there are terrorists who are attacking a legitimate government of, of Assad. Everybody else is a terrorist. Um, and uh, um, what Putin has also done, uh, there, were, there was some very interesting reporting, um, especially in 2014, 2015, uh, of, of how Russian federal services drove out uh, a lot of uh, Muslims, especially from the North Caucasus, into Syria. So when Russians talk about um, decline in their own domestic uh, terrorism, uh, a very likely reason for that is not because of any improvements, but really because they drove them all into Syria. And this Syria. was before the Olympics, right? The, in Sochi, they exactly wanted to, right. you know, That's yeah. exactly right, because they didn't want any incidents mm -hmm. in the Sochi Olympics. Um, so, uh, you know, and uh, many uh, Arab leaders see Putin as a strong leader. They don't, uh, they don't really see any contradictions. Uh, in their alliance with Iran and other uh, Arab leaders as well. So uh, to, to this day, Putin has been able to play this balance and act very well. Uh, again, you know, look, there are questions uh, about how, especially with um, Russia's growing alliance with Iran and Israel, but again, at the, sa at the same time, this has worked uh, to this date. Um, uh, you know, and uh, Russia certainly has concerns about domestic terrorism, but they simply drove everybody into Syria and hoping that, hope that somebody else will take care of the problem. As they are doing now. As they're doing now, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, gentlemen here. Wait for the mic. Uh, yeah. Thank you, uh, Irv Chapman. Uh, what, uh, how do you think the, uh, Rush, the uh, Turkish demand uh, for the extradition of Gulen will play out? And uh, mm -hmm. is there any validity in their case? Uh, and also, uh, it, we know we don't know what Trump's going to do, but what, what should the U.S. administration do next to uh, get the zero-sum game uh, below zero for the, uh, the Russian side? Yeah, it's a... <clears throat> no, that's a great question. Uh, Fethullah Gulen is a, is a self-exiled imam who lives in Sailorburg, Sailorsburg, Pennsylvania. He moved to the United States in 1999, fleeing a coup, or so, a soft coup in 1997 uh, in preparation for an arrest warrant uh, that went away in 2006. Um, and he has a green card since 2008. And the Turks blame him for being the mastermind of the coup on July 15, 2016, uh, and in a sense requested his extradition. Um, 
we should add that the incoming National Security Advisor wrote an op-ed, uh, Mike Flynn, uh, saying that Gulen should be extradited right. for what it's worth. Uh, he did, uh, and at previous times while speaking to Russia today, called, you know, was praising the coup attempt as it, as it was unfolding. And so it's hard to get a <laughs> sense of where Mike Flynn is on the Turkey issue. Okay. Um, I, 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 look, it's not up to the incoming administration to have any say over this. And I think if the incoming administration has any say over Department of Justice and then ultimately the State Department and how the extradition is handled, then we have descended into authoritarianism. And that will be an entirely bad thing. Um, and so does the Turkish case have merit? Uh, according to my study of the night of the coup attempt, there were absolutely Gulenists involved in it. There were also other people uh, involved in it who are not affiliated with, with, with Gulen. So it's up to the Turkish government to either request this extradition on other charges, which uh, they probably can find a whole bunch, uh, or tie him directly to perpetrators of the coup, uh, and then uh, um, um, uh, request his extradition that way. It's my understanding is that the, the initial uh, evidence that they gave to the US was focused on the latter, tying him to some other stuff. And then as they move forward, they're trying to tie him directly to the coup attempt itself. Uh, that will have to play out. Uh, the Turks, one thing that the Trump administration could probably do that wouldn't descend us into authoritarianism is that there could be a move to actually arrest him, um, uh, deeming him a flight risk. Uh, and there is some cause for that um, in the extradition treaty, Article 10. Uh, but even that is a bit wishy-washy because how much of a flight risk is a, is a health-stricken man who's, I think, believe in his mid-70s, who hasn't left his compound in Salisburg in years. Uh, uh, how should we approach it? Uh, DOJ should just do its job. Uh, and it's on the Turks to prove to us uh, 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 what's going on. OK, good question. Yes, gentlemen right there. Wait for the mic. Uh, hi, my name is Dimitri. I'm sorry, <coughs> I came in a little bit late. I was wondering if you could discuss in a little more detail the role of Israel in all this, mm -hmm. the relations with Russia and Israel, if they can have warm relations with both Iran and Israel, and with the relations between Turkey and Israel as well. Thank mm -hmm. you. Nani, you want to start on that? Sure, sure. Uh, well, uh, Putin wanted to restore uh, Russia's relations with Israel. Um, this was one of his goals, again, since he came into power. Um, and uh, Russia-Israeli relations really have grown to new heights uh, in recent years. Uh, the two countries share a visa-free regime. Uh, millions of Russian uh, tourists go to Israel every year. Uh, there's cooperation in uh, nanotechnology and, and, and other uh, issues. Um, I, uh, um, I, from what I can see, though, that this is a, uh, for, for all of its improvements, um, especially if you compare relations between the Soviet Union and Israel when there were no relations at all. Um, this really is a very big deal. Uh, but that said, uh, there are limits to this partnership because uh, Israel still is a, is a democracy, a pro-Western democracy, uh, and, uh, and Russia is not. Um, and uh, Russia, uh, Israel's relations with Israel have uh, based on uh, values. They're based on much deeper roots, really. This is, with uh, Israel, this is much more realpolitik, uh, recognition that Russia is a major player in the region. Uh, and uh, uh, Israel has to work with, with Russia, uh, Russia simply because it's there. Um, you know, in, during the Obama years, certainly Netanyahu and, and President Obama didn't have a very good relationship. Um, and so Netanyahu often turned to Putin. Um, but uh, but again, again, I think this is a very pragmatic uh, relationship on both sides. I, I should say that that's how I see it. Um, and um, 
uh, and for all its improvements and growth in recent years, um, uh, again, it, uh, it, it, it has its limits and it's going to continue having its limits. For example, you know, with the um, S-300 sales that, into, that began in 2010, um, Israeli leadership was very concerned and they uh, uh, lobbied uh, the Kremlin very, very hard to ban, to ban that sale. And uh, when the sale finally did happen in April, this raised a lot of concerns uh, in Israel. So for all this cooperation, there's still uh, questions to be answered. Mm -hmm. Anybody want to add anything on that? No. No, that's. I'm happy to happy to jump in there. So, with regard to, I um. So, Eastern Med has become a really interesting space for energy production or development. I think not so much because of the volumes, but because of how it changes this chessboard in the region of influence and uh, dependency and alliances. So. Um, in the Eastern Med are several major fields have been discovered, including in Israeli waters. Um, and there's been some interesting cooperation between Jordan and Israel in energy development, which hasn't been, which is, you know, was a watershed moment. But that production has been sort of slowed down, I think, um, a little bit based on low energy prices. So the production, I think, will also be sort of driven by the energy prices. Um, and um, the, in terms of Russian interest therein, I think it is important to note that I, about 20% of Israel does, is Russian immigrants or Russian language yeah. speakers. So I think there's some interest there. But um, Russia has um, no concessions in the Eastern Med for energy development. So although they've tried, they haven't succeeded. Um, but I'm, so I'm not, a, I'm not a deep expert on Israel's energy production, but there is, there is something there. And the big discovery of the Zor field um, last August off of Egypt also increases the dynamics that this gas would be developed and produced. Importantly, though, what is, what is produced would be for um, exports into the region as opposed to exports onto the global market. Um, this interestingly sort of puts pressure from a Turkish or a Russian vantage point because the obvious demand market would be Turkey as well as Southeast Europe. So there's a huge interest in getting that energy to go to that, in that direction. But whether it does with or without Turkish involvement or whether it does at the expense of Russian dominance of the market share in, in um, Southeast Europe, are the questions about for what happens further, for a few moves down the chessboard. Mm -hmm. and, I'll, and I'll just add there that the only viable export route uh, goes through Cyprus's uh, exclusive economic zone. And Turkey is the only country in the world that, that, that recognizes the Turkish Republic of Northern Cyprus. Uh, and peace talks just broke down. And does not recognize that economic and does, zone. And does not recognize the economic zone because it's controlled by Greek-controlled Cyprus, essentially. And so. That pipeline only goes if the Cypriots solve their problems. <laughs> uh, and peace talks broke down in Switzerland last week, or maybe early this week, between uh, the, Greek, you know, the Greek Cypriot leader and the Turkish Cypriot leader 
about resolving those issues. And so that will be, that, that hasn't been resolved. So that pipeline out of Israel into Jehan, you know, in, 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 in southern Turkey, uh, and then potentially onto the European gas market uh, is not on the table. One, one last point building on that. The potential for exports via LNG is possible. Um, so Egypt has stunning um, demand growth. It used to be a big exporter. So it has these LNG terminals um, off its waters that could be used, that are sitting dormant, that could be used to export this gas. But you need quite a bit of gas to be developed in the region. Um, that would, that would be most efficiently shipped to those LNG terminals and then exported, um, say, to Southeast Europe or to Turkey. Um, but the pipeline issue is a huge thorn. Um, and yeah, it's a few moves down the chessboard. <laughs> OK. Gentleman right here. Hi, I'm Ryan Schaefer I'm with Headquarters Marine Corps. Mm -hmm. So the question is, Russia's intervening in, in the Middle East and with this uh, attempt to counterweight U.S., do they really think they can find a political solution to Libya, Yemen, Iraq, or any of these? Yeah, that's a very good, very good question. Um, I, I'm not sure that they do. I'm not sure they're interested in, uh, in a real political solution. They're interested in entrenching conflict. And so far, they've done that uh, very well uh, in Syria in particular. Frankly, Russia benefits from conflict uh, through weapons sales and so forth. And uh, I think they're interested in, in keeping that, that going. And it doesn't have to be, um, you know, it could be, uh, um, uh, for example, um, uh, sort of a, even if it's something, it becomes something akin to a frozen conflict, the way mm -hmm. the way they like frozen, they like frozen conflicts, exactly. Um, that, that will work very well. They're not interested in a real solution. Mm -hmm. The question I began at the beginning, which is, you know, Stadielit, what should the United States be doing to try to counter this? Uh, Obama has adopted a policy of saying, fine, if the Russians want to get into a quagmire in Syria, you know, let them do it. Uh, certainly not committing U.S. ground troops. Trump doesn't want to commit U.S. ground troops to, to the fight against ISIS. Uh, do, are we losing something by allowing Russia to have this uh, position in the Middle East or not? Absolutely, of course. Of course. What are we losing? Uh, look, we're, we're losing. Well, for one thing, uh, you know, Assad was about to fall before the Russians uh, inter intervened. This, it was it was pretty obvious that this was going to happen, and Putin saved him. Uh, and instead, he um, continued. Um, uh, really, he's helping Assad carry out an ethnic cleansing, uh, help flood Europe with refugees, help this. This is destabilizing Europe. Uh, this is helping uh, the rise of far right and I should say far left parties in Europe. And this is something that Putin wants to see happen. And this is working out great for him because he didn't actually start the conflict. Mm. Uh, he simply uh, used the situation and helped make it worse. Uh, and uh, uh, of course, we're losing the, the standing uh, to uh, American credibility, uh, to more broadly Western uh, credibility in the region and, and more globally. When we failed um, to, uh, uh, to stand by commitment to, to the red line in Syria in 2013. This was a signal that reverberated everywhere internationally. I was, um, you know, I was in Japan uh, shortly after that happened, and uh, Japanese security officials were, were telling me, um, you, you know, so we, you, 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 didn't interf you, you, you didn't stand by your words, you didn't, uh, you, you didn't care about the red line that you drew, uh, Putin now annexed Crimea. Uh, we have our own concerns about China. What does that mean? Are you going to stand by us? If China does, uh, uh, if China, for example, does tries to do something to Senkaku Islands, which is a big concern for the Japanese, um, so the, the the loss for American credibility is is uh, is enormous. Um, what 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 we should have been doing for a very long time 
um, is, uh, we, for example, when we had um, ceasefires with Russia in Syria, um, rather than just um, have these hopes that the ceasefire would hold, which is something that the administration had always expressed, there should have been clear, uh, clear red lines and they should have been enforced. Uh, there could have been a mechanism built in, for example, to um, target Assad's forces if he failed to stand by a ceasefire agreement. This could have been done very carefully uh, without interfering with the Russians. But again, there should have been um, a stick rather than a carrot approach. Consequences. Consequences. And, and if that was enforced, that would have been a clear message. Again, look, the Russian military cannot compete with the American military. Frankly, no one can. Um, but by simply being there, you know, presence is relevance. By simply being there, Russia is blocking our access. I want to put the same question to all the rest of you because, I mean, there are some that would argue that if Assad uh, had been overthrown, uh, the result in Syria would be even worse, that we would have another failed state. We'd have sort of Libya on steroids and, and Islamic crazies running around uh, instead of what remains of some sort of states. So putting aside now the, the history of what we've done in the past, what Obama did and didn't do, what should we be doing now? Does it matter that, that Russia has this, uh, this role now in the region? Should we be trying to counter it, or should we be saying, fine, you know, you want it, it's yours? <laughs> so I, I spend my entire day uh, analyzing Turkey, uh, and because of the events of the past couple of years, Turkey and Syria, and I have the entirely opposite view, sorry. Uh, uh, I think there is a lot of hype uh, about the uh, loss of American credibility in the region, certainly has happened. Uh, there's a lot of talk about American retreats. I think it's a natural move away from a constant war footing that we were on after 9-11. Uh, and I think treating Syria as a zero-sum game between Russian and American, uh, uh, or between the Russians and the United States, takes a secondary conflict that poses very little risk to the United States. I'm talking about the Islamic State uh, here, and elevates it to a plane on the level of risks of confrontation with Russia and, frankly, China. Uh, and so what would I do to counter Russia is focus on where they actually are impinging directly on American interests. Mm -hmm. And that is via Syria uh, uh, and some of our own domestic politics, you have concerns about NATO. You know, I've always said you know, the, the, it's not horizontal escalation in Syria that I'm worried about. Uh, it's, you know, it, it, it's that escalatory action in Syria, taking cruise missiles and, say, taking out Assad's uh, jets in retaliation for violating a ceasefire. Well, if I was Russia, I would just co-mingle my jets. They fly the same jets, and then all of a sudden you take the cruise missiles off the table, and then what do you do? And so then how do you have escalatory options for asymmetric Russian responses to obvious U.S. policy solutions? And then what do you do then if the, if the Russian response doesn't come in Syria, but it comes in Estonia? via a cyber attack that brings down their banking system like in 2008. Uh, and then is that an Article 5 issue? And how do we respond to something like that with an alliance that really matters, NATO, versus one that sort of matters in Syria? Uh, and so what I would do is focus on what we do best, uh, is alliance building with Western European, Central European allies, uh, come up with a, co a coherent response to Russian violations of the Interne uh, Intermediate Nuclear Forces Treaty, the INF, its introduction of weapons into Kaliningrad, uh, its development of a new class of ballistic missile that gives it you know, <laughs> new capabilities to hit Europe, uh, and take advantage of what we already have in place, NATO, these structures, 
to, 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 to counter Russia everywhere. And part of that is a retrenchment of liberal values. Putin isn't running around supporting you know, Francois Hollande, you know, Barack Obama, or people like that. He's running around supporting Marine Le Pen, Donald Trump, people like this who are on the far right of their spectrums that upset liberal values. And so we need to conceptualize security policies in a slightly different way than in the past. Maybe we need uh, better fake web, fake uh, news sites than uh, <laughs> they're able to put together. We have a lot of them. Yeah, we do, right unfortunately. Uh, any other thoughts on this in the, in the energy field? Should we sure. be? Building on, building on Aaron's point about sort of stressing the liberal legal norms that we, uh, that we, um, that we espouse or that we, that we're used that it, to. <laughs> yeah, that are good for us is uh, in the energy sector, it's important to note that all of the interesting energy developments in terms of um, we're seeing sort of market forces and technology, not specific policies, are driving a lot of these changes in, in say, oil not being driven by <coughs> the ability of suppliers to control prices, things like that. And that has had impacts on Russia. Um, the sanctions that have targeted the oil sector in Iran or the um, up upstream future production in Russia have have been, I think, very important, but they haven't impacted, say, the Russian side of the equation in the oil sector. So I think letting those market forces continue to work is really important, and so it's not really a specific U.S. action there. One major exception is, 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 is how the U.S. has worked in um, Southeast Europe, including in Turkey, to bring market forces to bear where they haven't been able to before due to a limited number of actors sort of um, and oligopolistic uh, market behaviors in the gas sector. So if you can really continue to stress the need for um, diversification and mm -hmm. uh, true integration of the European gas market, that will have benefits mm -hmm. across the energy sector in Europe, right? In, in terms of economic competitiveness, in terms of energy security, in terms of environmental sustainability because of the efficiencies in the system, but also, and very importantly, it'll bring more political cohesion. And that, I think, that political cohesion will help oblige Russia to behave on those market terms and according to those liberal legal norms, which are in the United States and Europe's, and I believe ultimately in Russia's best interest as well. Similarly, for, for Turkey, it has a um, great ambitions to be a big energy hub in the region, but that can only happen if it also follows the open market rules and allow and create, and which is important. If you don't have real market terms, then you're not going to drive the investment, which will bring in, say, the LNG terminals or the pipeline construction to help really move energy through the region as well as to feed um, Turkish demand. So if you I think that's also something the United States should continue to stress is important for Turkey as well. Mm -hmm. um, I can't speak to say the great power politics of, uh, of uh, these big leaders because I think that's a, a lot is driven on personality and I don't know about whether I can speculate on it. Ali, in terms of, of, of Iran, I mean obviously if the US were to walk away from the JCPOA, uh, that would not exactly uh, do anything to uh, limit Russian influence in Iran, would it? No. And Trump ran on a campaign of really questioning Americans' involvement in the Middle East. And I, you, know, you can make the argument that that is one reason a lot of Americans voted for him, because the public has tired of permanent war in the region. And walking away from the JCPOA, 
uh, hiring advisors and officials who want to wage permanent war against radical Islam and overthrow the regime in Iran directly contradicts his promises during the campaign. And you know, we have to question whether these policies are realistic because the U.S. won't be able to overthrow the Iranian regime. Undermining the JCPOA would be highly negative for U.S. interests. And if the U.S. actually wants to push back against Russian interests in the region, uh, really trying to destroy JCPOA, I would argue, helps the Russians and other actors expand their power mm -hmm. in the region without really doing much to Iran's influence in the region in the first place. Because the reality is uh, Iran and Russia are powerful actors in the region. In, in terms of U.S. involvement in this Syrian conflict, now I, I would disagree that the U.S. had to be there, so to say. I mean, if, if you look at the conflict now, Russia and Iran are going to own Syria, and it's a wasteland. And somebody has to come up with the funding to rebuild that country. And I think there will always be reasons for U.S. involvement, and I think a lot of those reasons are not uh, justifications for uh, U.S. involvement in the region. Okay. Um, how are we on time? It's 11. Two minutes. Okay. One last question. Who would like to ask one last question of our panelists? Is there anybody? Or have you all been completely sated by? Yes, right here. Thank you very much. Um, I'm Satoshi Miki from Japan Bank for International Corporation. Um, I would like to ask about uh, your views on Europe, not meaning how uh, the European Union would go ahead after Brexit or maybe the elections next year in Europe, but uh, regarding the Middle East and the US uh, policies, how much do you uh, observe uh, the Europe's uh, cooperation or on the other hand, the risks um, in the coming years when you see uh, what the US and Russia uh, would cooperate or compete um, in the Middle East, uh, including Turkey or maybe Iran or whatever, uh, starting from the uh, sanctions towards uh, Russia um, at the beginning. Thank you. Sure. Um, you know, Europeans are divided. Uh, they're divided in how, they, how to approach Russia, what's the best solution, how they view Russia in general. Um, and, um, uh, you know, again, what I mentioned earlier about the refugee flows from, from Syria into Europe, this has been a major concern. This has been very stabilizing. Europe was not prepared uh, to handle the, the, this many people. And uh, it's driving the rise of far left, uh, far, far right and far left uh, forces. And again, Putin is just very good at taking advantage uh, of this situation. Um, on the sanctions uh, front, you know, one thing I will say, uh, I've, a little discussed story of sanctions. We, 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 there's, there's many different sanctions uh, against Russia, uh, and um, uh, they work differently. And the Europeans often focus on the, the damage to the European economy, uh, on the trade with Russia. Um, what many don't focus on is how successful uh, uh, sanctions against the Russian defense sector have been specifically, um, I'm just using a very specific uh, sanction, that the, and these, these sanctions work together with American uh, sanctions. Um, they, these sanctions uh, prohibit, prohibit import of high-tech um, dual-use uh, imports that Russia can't produce on their own. Uh, and uh, if, uh, as long as American and European sanctions are in place together, 
that it, it has already taken so much effect that frankly even Putin uh, talked about it uh, publicly. Um, and um, removing these sanctions uh, on the European side would be very bad because it will enable the Russian uh, military industrial complex to keep, uh, to keep rising. Um, and for all the talk of how damaging the European sanctions have been to the European economy, they were more damaging to Russia, that's, that's one thing. Um, second, it's hard to separate uh, when it comes to Russia, and particularly the effect of sanctions more broadly versus the decline in the economy that was already there. Um, I recently read a report that actually said overall European economy remained resilient uh, despite uh, Russian sanctions. So that, that's, my, that's my one point. Uh, the, divisions, uh, the divisions in Europe uh, really have to do with a lot of different, uh, th different views, uh, how different European countries view Russia, how, whether or not they see it as dangerous or destabilizing. Italy in particular, for example, doesn't, uh, lo looks at Russia as very differently. They don't really pay as much attention to the Syria situation because they care more about Libya. Um, and uh, that makes it difficult to reach a consensus. Um, in the summer, uh, in the summer, I remember uh, European officials privately talking about the desire to lift sanctions um, sometime in January. I suspect that that's not going to be as easy, frankly, looking at the situation right now, um, because again, uh, a lot of this, all these countries have to reach consensus, and the situation has now changed, especially after the bombing of the UN humanitarian convoy. Uh, in Aleppo that has really turned away um, uh, uh, France, who was actually one of the staunch supporters of lifting sanctions uh, prior to that event. Um, and uh, if I may make just one last point, uh, you, you know, what happens in the Middle East never really stays in the Middle East. And uh, this is why it's important for America and for Europe as well to remain engaged because just as we've seen with Syria, the flood of refugees, uh, other uh, events in the region will keep spilling over. And for that reason, it's important for America to stay there. Okay. Um, thank you very much for coming. Thank you very much to the panel. Uh, really good and thorough and deep discussion and I'm sure we will be continuing this. Thank you very much. Thank you.